Our reading this morning is one that has been in my files for uh, a couple years, actually. It is taken from The Village Voice, and this is a, um, it's an advice column, and the guy that gives the advice is called Andrew W.K., and it's written by this letter. I'll read the letter, um, and then we'll hear Jen Ryan Brown offer Andrew's response. So here's the letter in full. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for doing what you do and helping people. I'm going to make this short and to the point. My older brother was diagnosed with cancer last week. My whole family is freaking out and trying to deal with the news. Everyone is trying to find different ways to help, but something my grandmother said has really got me angry. She said that we should all just, quote, pray for my brother, like prayer would actually save his life. Just thinking about it now makes my fists clench with frustration. We need to actively help my brother and do actual things to save him, not kneeling on the ground and mumbling superstitious nonsense. I got into a big fight with my grandmother and the rest of my family about this, and now I feel worse than ever. I need to get them to see that praying and religious mumbo-jumbo just does not help. How do I explain this to them? Thanks for reading this. Sincerely, not gonna pray. Dear Not Gonna Pray, I'm deeply sorry to hear about your brother's diagnosis. I'm sending you my thoughts. My heart goes out to your brother and your whole family. Guess what? That was me praying for you. I think the idea of praying is a lot less complicated, a lot more powerful, and a little different than you may realize. In fact, I'll bet you're probably already praying all the time and just don't realize it. Prayer is a type of thought it's a lot like meditation, a type of very concentrated mental focus with passionate emotion directed toward a concept or situation. But there's a special X factor ingredient that makes prayer different than meditation or other types of thought. That X factor is humility. This is the most seemingly contradictory aspect of prayer and what many people dislike about the feeling of prayer. Getting down on your knees is not about lowering your power or being a weakling. It's about showing respect for the size and grandeur of what we call existence. It's about being humble in the presence of the vastness of life, space, and sensation, and acknowledging our extremely limited understanding of what it all really means. Being humble is very hard for many people because it makes them feel unimportant and helpless. To embrace our own smallness is not to say we're dumb or that we don't matter, but to realize how amazing it is that we exist at all in the midst of so much more. To be fully alive, we must realize how much else there is besides ourselves. We must accept how much we don't know and how much we still have to learn about ourselves and the whole world. Kneeling down and fully comprehending the incomprehensible is the physical act of displaying our respect of everything that isn't us. To know that you don't know is the definition of a spiritual awakening, and keeping that realization at the front of our mind and in the core of our being informs the rest of our existence. 
it takes a deeper type of strength to admit to ourselves that we don't have it all figured out than to run around keeping all our plates spinning. It seems strange to think that turning yourself over to your own bewilderment would actually bring clarity, but it does. Solving this riddle is the beginning of any true spiritual journey. Many people feel threatened or uncomfortable with this sort of gray area. They like things to be yes or no, black or white and right or wrong. They want to live in the real world that they can touch and make sense of. When things don't make sense, they retreat. These people will have to allow themselves to fully admit that they don't know in order to actually begin knowing, and that's often too frightening of a task. It can be too painful to even imagine, after all those years of effort, simply abandoning our carefully crafted structures and stepping out into the immense chasm of the uncharted and the unknowable. I want you to pray for your brother right now as a gesture to your grandmother, who, if she didn't exist, neither would you. I want you to pray right now, just for the sake of challenging yourself. I want you to find a place alone and kneel down against all your stubborn tendencies telling you not to, and close your eyes and think of one concentrated thought, your brother. I want you to think of your love for him your fear of him dying, your, fearing of, your feeling of powerlessness, your feelings of anger and frustration, your feelings of confusion. You don't need to ask to get anything. You don't need to try and fix anything. You don't need to get any answers. Just focus on any, every moment you've ever had with your brother. Reflect on every moment from years ago and even from just earlier today let the feelings wash over you. Let the feelings take you away from yourself. Let them bring you closer to him. Let yourself be overwhelmed by the unyielding and uncompromising emotion of him until you lose yourself in it. Think about him more than you've ever thought about anyone before. Think about him more deeply and with more detail than you've ever thought about anything. Think about how incredible it is that you have a brother, that he exists at all. Focus on him until you feel like your soul is going to burst. Tell him in your heart and soul that you love him. Feel that love pouring out of you from all sides. Then get up and go. Be with him and your family. And you can tell your grandmother that you prayed for your brother. Good morning. My name is Doug Brown. I am the moderator of this church. As many of you know, uh, I am called upon to preside over matters of public controversy. And this certainly qualifies as one. This is our second ministerial duel of our church year. <clears throat> the last one had um, rave reviews. Uh, we'll see how this one goes. Uh, this duel is a topic that is picked by the winners uh, of a competitive bidding at our church auction. Uh, the topic this year is religion versus secularism. Is religion a force for good or ill in the world? 
It was purchased by Roger and Sally Demler, who are trying to hide, but they are in the back on the left, in case you want to know. If you don't like the topic, you know who to blame this year. Now, you too can have an opportunity to purchase a sermon uh, at our church auction, which this year will be April 7th. It is a great event, and we hope to see all of you there. Um, one disclaimer, uh, the views expressed may or may not be the minister's own views. Please keep that in mind. The format will be as follows. Each minister will have two minutes to uh, answer a series of questions. Uh, that will be followed by the uh, other minister. Uh, this timing will be strictly enforced. They will all each have an opportunity to conclude at the end. The person who will go first will be chosen by a coin toss. Before we start, we will introduce the show with an anthem uh, that is quite apropos to the topic chosen. So, Roger, I want you to listen carefully. This anthem is, Give Me Some of That Old Time Religion. Fire. <laughs> This duel will be between Reverend Nathan Dietering and Reverend Jessica James Carnes. <laughs> and Reverend Jessica, you will call it. Heads or tails? Heads. It is heads. You get to go first. The first question for you is as follows. What 
is religion? You have two minutes. Hold on. We just hold these. What is religion? Religion is our real life superpower for saving the world. It's where we acknowledge we can't do it alone. We need other people, even to save ourselves. Without religion, there's no justice or mercy or grace. Religion is where we call everyone into their highest selves simply by loving them. Religion is the bottle for our good news message we send out into the world. The message in which we say to everyone, you have inherent worth and dignity no matter how many hours per week you work or how much money you have or how often you volunteer your time. Religion is the only place where we say you are more than you can produce or what your body can perform. It's where we proclaim everybody is made in the image of God. God calls all of you beloved. No matter what, everyone is redeemable. It's the last place where we have real relationships with people of different generations. Religion is where we bind up the broken, feed the hungry, tie our hearts and our fates to one another. Religion compels us to say to each individual who walks in the door, you are loved, you are worthy, you are necessary, you're enough, and we're in this together. That, my friends, is religion. Reverend Nathan, two minutes. I just want you to know that she's an Eagles fan. Look, don't let any minister quote some forgotten language like Latin to tell you what the word originally meant, the word religion. And what I mean is don't let etymology hijack your common sense, okay? Because we all know when I say religion, what you're all thinking of is top down, you sit passive and I'll tell you how it is and that there's a right way and there's a wrong way and God is this and God is not that and not that and not that. Because look, religion is the religious industrial complex you feel me? Because what I mean is there's a whole industry out there trying to organize our spirituality into institutions and tell us what to believe and how to behave. And yeah, sure, candles are nice and flowers are nice and the clergy smile, but that's how they hook you in. <laughs> because before you know it, you're being told you have to pay your way into heaven. And heaven, have you ever noticed, is depicted like super gaudy and gold and full of fountains like it's Vegas or something. And who wants to spend the rest of your life in Vegas? <laughs> but look, religion and the religious industrial complex has caused such damage, and you know that I'm right. Crusades, crucifixions, the invention of thumbscrews to punish heretics, Spanish Inquisition, holy wars, sex abuse in the Catholic Church, the Taliban, 9-11, God-sanctioned prejudice against gays, lesbians, and transgender people, bombs every day in Afghanistan, set off between warring factions of Islam. So, sure, religion, you know, does some good, but I'm sure you'd say that Darth Vader has positive qualities. <laughs> My point is, on the whole, in the totality, religious 
Religion is authoritarian, dogmatic, and dangerous. Right? Right. I'm glad to see everyone sticking to the time frame. <laughs> Question number two for Reverend Jessica. Why bother with religion when so much harm is done in religion's name, a.k.a. is secularism better? All right. Is it religion that caused so much harm, or is it misguided humans? Is religion the root of the problem? Because I think the problem might actually be heteronormative patriarchy and white supremacy. These things... These things don't define religion, and they also exist in secular spaces. Joseph Stalin was pretty secular, right? And in 1917, when the Mexican government severely enforced secularism and shut down churches around the country, it set off the Cristero War, and 250,000 people were killed. As a result, more extremist subgroups became deeply entrenched and used those martyrs to justify themselves. So look, when everyone sits down this evening to eat delicious crab dip, I mean watch the Super Bowl, we'll all have different things we want to get out of that experience. We all have our ideas of how that event should go. Some of these we have in common and some of them not. So if a handful of players walks out onto the field tonight and decides they're going to change the rules or the equipment of the game, is everyone just going to go along with it? If the other players don't agree, will they say something like, I like to exercise and kick the ball around sometimes, but I don't know if I can really call myself an athlete. So if the new ideas are lousy, will the fans just walk out of the stadium, turn off their TVs and say, well, geez, Football is awful. Football is a terrible idea. You know what? I'm only going to watch chess, champion chess championships from now on because they have better snacks anyway. No, we're not going to walk out or turn off our TVs or stop calling ourselves football players. They're going to lift up their voices and stay in the conversation. Reverend Nathan. <laughs> She's an Eagles fan. <laughs> Why bother with religion when so much harm is done in religion's name? That's a great question, Doug. I mean, the fact that Doug is asking it means that, that we're all thinking it. That, but okay, I'll play your game. Religion's upside. It helps people find community, describes a worldview where things happen for a reason, that Mr. God is up there and in charge. And by the way, you ever notice that God is always a dude? <laughs> Gives folks a reason beyond altruism to be a good person because somewhere down the line, you'll get a big payoff. If religion is a Sunday thing, I guess it gives you live music and you get spoken word and warmed up coffee. It provides jobs for people who, who are so bad at being spiritual they need to make it their full-time jobs. What else am I missing? What else am I missing? See, you can't think of anything, can you? That's why you're all quiet. 
The downsides, I've already gone over them, so you don't, need to, to, you don't need me to go over that again. You've heard my gospel truth. My point is this. We can do all that we're doing here this morning, the candles, the bells, the smells, the robes, the TNT, the music, and we can just call it this new name, our secular Sunday time. Because all the baggage that you and I know comes with religion, the hitching post of dogma and doctrine, the smelly history that none of us can deny, the flat earth mentality that asks us too much, too often to deny reason and science and truth, it just is not worth the energy to pretend. Just ask your friendly local millennial if you doubt me. They're leaving institutional religion by the droves and it's not just because they're on their phones. What's more, there are countries like basically all of Europe that are secular, and guess what? The more secular those countries become, the more peaceful and chill and happy, and they even have better coffee, these people report to be. Here, Doug, let me submit to you into the record of evidence this book, The Secular Life, and you can read all about it. I may read it while you're talking, so be careful. The next question for Jessica. Can I be good without God? Who wrote these questions? <laughs> anyway. No. No, you cannot be good without God. That's nonsense. Why would you want or need to do that? God comes from an old German word that means good. So God is quite literally goodness. God is the exchange of energy, the transmission of hope and kindness between human beings. God doesn't care what anyone calls God or what anyone thinks God looks like. God just is. And God is what convicts us to have empathy for people, for people who are suffering, to care for the sick, and shelter the homeless. God is our ache for justice and healing. God is our roar for righteousness. God is what stirs our hearts to offer mercy, cultivates the gifts that we bring to saving the world, and animates our hands to pick up the work we see before us. God is what inspires us to rely on one another, to carry our burdens together. God is the music we sing to, the community we lean on to carry us through the valley. God is our laughter and our celebration and gratitude for the abundance we share. There is no being good without God. Reverend Nathan, can I be good without God? Yes. <laughs> okay, but look. It's common sense, first given by uh, Voltaire, that he's a failed philosopher. He, he's the one that said if God didn't exist, we would have to invent him anyway. His point being that we needed a divine being to check our rights and our wrongs. Otherwise, if we didn't have that divine being, any number of atrocities are possible and could go unpunished. He was such a noob. If God exists, Jessica, then is what we're seeing in the world, like in this country, is this, like, is this, is this what you call good? So look, it's a common slag against atheists 
isn't it, that you can't be a good person if you don't believe. A study, actually, the University of Kentucky discovered that most people conclude that a serial killer is more likely to be an atheist than a religious person. People, correlation does not mean causation. I mean, I could go through the list of Wikipedia, of fame, you can get it, famous, happy, decent, moral atheists and secularists, but I won't waste your time. We all know that we don't need some big old peeping Tom in the sky <laughs> to keep us on the up and up. I mean, Jessica, is the only reason that you're nice that there's a big spy camera somewhere? The notion that we can't be good without God is one among many prejudices that we learn because most of us grew up in a religion that taught us that non-believers are bad people. We are products of a culture. And what's considered good or bad or in between is more a product of the norms of our culture than any dude telling us what to do in his white robe and staff and flowy hipster beard. Because doing good for its own reason is good enough. Because when there's no afterlife, there are no do-overs or heavens to make things right, even if it's Vegas. And atheists do good in the world because we know this is the one life we have, so we better have make the most of it. Jessica, why use religious words anyway? Why not come up and get insulted up from the pulpit, right? <laughs> why use religious words anyway? What is it that makes a word religious? Who gets to say which words are religious and which words are not? My religious words are love and hope, justice and healing, covenant and tradition, grace and worship, ritual and redemption, prayer and story. There are so many religious words. My religion is how I intentionally practice saying and imperfectly embodying these words in community with others. Some people practice them in churches and temples and synagogues, and some people practice them outside under the sky. Wherever it happens, there's still religious words. If someone misinterprets or abuses some of our religious words, we don't simply throw up our hands and let them take ownership of the entire dictionary. We get to use our sacred no. We get to lift up our voices and demonstrate to the world what those words mean to us. Reinventing the wheel is exhausting and unnecessary. We come from countless generations of wilderness people. We carry their stories in our sacred texts, inside the marrow of our bones. Don't let anyone steal that from you. We all get to keep interpreting and translating and living out the heart of those stories in the context of this moment in time. So rewarp the loom and weave your own unique thread into the tapestry of religion and use religious words when you do it. Reverend Nathan, why use religious words? Yeah, really. Look, I like what Barbara Brown Taylor says, she's an Episcopal priest, how she says that when it comes to language, especially religious language, we are all damaged trusters. 
meaning that we have seen how the church and ministers and the parade of so-called clergy damning people to all kinds of pain and misery on behalf of God, and we know how symbols of religion have been weaponized to exclude and to harm and to sanction prejudice and to name who's in and who's out. And so we all know how loaded and how, frankly, friends, heavy, how bogged down and full of baggage these words are, like religion, church, God, Jesus, Bible, worship, prayer, sacred spirit, confession, sin, heaven, hell, holy, right? They have done damage. We don't trust them anymore. So can't we just say enough already? Can't, I mean, can't we invent new words? It worked for the internet. <laughs> Google, text, email, hashtag, emoji, website, spam. I mean, a whole new language is possible to describe what goes on here. This place, we might call it the secular steeple dome. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> and instead of a sermon, we might call this a morning memo. <laughs> and instead of worship, we can call this a tasty hymn sandwich. Well, congregation, we have reached the end of our duel. It was a very hard-fought battle, I would say. <clears throat> I hope our, our game this afternoon is as uh, competitive. <laughs> so we will have, e each will have an opportunity to make concluding remarks, and I will ask them to be focused on this question. What does it say about our church that we can debate religion's worth in a sermon? Jessica. Friends, we debate the worth of religion in our church because our ancestors were heretics. We honor them with our doubts and our questions. We pay our respects by balancing intuition and mystery with logic and reason. We understand that wisdom is what emerges from combining each of these virtues. We remember the courage and sacrifice of the heretics by remaining in the arena with them and wrestling with our language and our symbols. We debate religion's worth because we value humility. We don't presume to know all the answers to questions of ultimate concern. We debate religion's worth because we care about how other people experience and understand our shared world. We debate because we want to make religion better. We debate and learn and grow and change because we are fierce and proud religious people. Reverend Nathan. What is, uh, I've had to basically contradict every sermon that I've ever given um, in my 15 years, and it, it, has, been, uh, it has been a lot of fun, actually. Um, what it says about our church is, our steeple dome is, isn't that a great name? Uh, it, it's amazing. What it says about us is that th this kind of place is amazing, and it's because it's, we, we value dialogue. It says that we practice one of our historical affirmations that all of us are given a free pew 
to go along with this free pulpit so that the first word for religion ought to be the word against religion because we need doubt and we need to argue and we need to wrestle but not on the receiving line with the pronouncements you hear from the church okay it says that doubt is not an enemy of faith but an asset it says that covenantal religion which is what we have horizontal religion not vertical religion religion made in relationship rather than in top-down creed I'll tell you how to believe is valued it's a valuable alternative here it says that when church members buy an auction sermon idea from us and then they hand them to their ministers and say preach it the way I like it and we say back you didn't pay that much <laughs> but we also take your perspective and point of view seriously right Roger and Sally yes all right all of which is to say in this house, revelation, my friends, is not sealed, and dogma is not locked up, and God is not God's name. An atheist can sing around, because Roger famously hates rounds, he can sing around with people who pray to God every day in this space without kicking each other out and telling each other that they don't belong here or throwing hymnals at them. It means that we belong to a tradition where worship this space is an act of generosity to the person next to you and not about getting your own needs met. So, here we are. <laughs> I've like spanked time, haven't I? This is the last place we get to go to that's not a mall that you don't need to earn your way into and you need to have somebody tell you that you've earned enough to be here. And I could just go on and on with this memo. <laughs> but after this week, we had the State of the Union. What I would say is about our church, and that is this. The state of our church is strong.